0: Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman with my co-host here, David Ludlum, and we are interviewing Western Colorado Community College's Technical Instructor of Me- Mechatronics, Josh Pertelli. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thank you. Well, I guess the first question is what the heck is mechatronics? Does anyone know? <laughs> so, yeah, that is a question I get a lot. So, mechatronics is the combination of mechanical and electrical. So, they took the word mechanical and electrical or electronics and smashed them together to make mechatronics. And then, as that would imply, it's a lot of mechanical skills. So, stuff like uh, robotics and sensors and ways that we can use electronics to then interact with the mechanical world. And that actually manifests in things like how do we manufacture things automatically? How do we, uh, you know, it could be anything like maybe an ATM uh, where, you know, you put your credit card in and suddenly you have money out, but it has to take that information and make something happen with it. It could be automating a tractor. It could be counting things in a factory. It could be packaging. It's just a way to use electronics to interact with the world. So
2: out in the hallway, there's a Coke machine, and the little arm goes and grabs the coke, and it and it brings it back and drops it in the little thing, and the door opens and it falls out. That's all that happens because of people like you that understand mechatronics and how to make it all fit together. Is that kind of right? Yeah, absolutely. That
1: okay. is mechatronics.
0: Do you think you have to have a certain like these innate skills to to go into this field? Because I'm thinking like, wow, I I can't even imagine the work that goes into you know navigating to make these these things work, right? You know, I, I, do you have to be a certain type of person?
1: Uh, I mean, I think there's certainly some things that would help. So, I mean, having a good math background is going to help a lot. Um, If you're just kind of more meticulous with things, that's going to help because any one little thing that's wrong in a circuit or in a system is going to throw the whole thing off. So, I mean, if you have one place where, you know, you're supposed to have voltage and it's grounded or you didn't solder something correctly or even like, coding's even worse, if you put a period where there should be a comma, the whole thing just kind of crashes and you have to figure out what's wrong. So uh, attention to detail and then math skills. But beyond that, I think it's more of just curiosity. People that like to tinker, that like to use their hands are going to like mechatronics.
2: Well, so uh, a little over a year ago, We got this mobile learning lab, a big donation to the university and to the community college that is outfitted with the various systems that you know all about and and teach. In your position, do you interface with that Mechatronics mobile lab
1: or is it all in the classroom or... How do you work with that lab? So that's the mobile learning lab. Um, That was the Sturm family that donated a ton of money. And now we have a, it's like a full size 70 foot semi, and it has a ton of manufacturing stuff. So it's, um, it's meant to be like a little mini manufacturing floor in the back of it. And it's every kind of sensor that you'd see in industry that has a tendency to be cheap. So a lot of companies use it, but they fail a lot. So um, it's meant to be something that you can go in and troubleshoot because that's the most important thing is being able to look at a system and figure out what's wrong with it if you're say a person that's repairing those systems so um, we have these little ball valves or actually not ball valves they're spring valves but valves where you put pressure in one side you hit the spring and then depending on that air is going to come out or the top or the bottom of the other side and uh, we have a whole bunch of things that we'll check to see, like, you know, is our block the right size? Is the hole oriented correctly? We have a robotic arm that comes down and picks it up and puts the actual valve stem in the middle of it and screws on our bolt and then a pressure regulator that checks to make sure, you know, is it actually functioning correctly? So part of it's just, will all of these things work together? And then we can do, uh, you know, troubleshooting and teach stuff like that.
2: You said that these systems fail a lot. Why is it that Even after 200 years of engineering, things still fail just as much as they used to. How come that never gets better?
1: So it does get better. Actually, I would even say it gets a lot better. It's just that we keep pushing what we can do. So there's like an acceptable rate of failure, which is, it depends on your industry. For something like, let's shoot a rocket into space, the acceptable level of failure is extremely low, but they're pushing really far into what we're capable of doing. So if you were to go into, um, I don't know, if you were to look at like a pocket digital assistant that they had in like the late 90s or something, that was them pushing the boundary of what they could do and we could make that much, much more reliable today, much easier, faster, and cheaper. So it's like an arms race between
2: performance and technology? Yes. Okay.
0: Going back to the Sturm A&B um, Bank Mobile Learning Lab, who I, I'm sure if, if there's anybody listening and they live here in Western Colorado, they probably have seen this huge kind of like semi-truck driving around uh, the valley. But who, who has access to this? How... Is it for students? Is it for businesses?
1: So it's for anyone that's interested. So um, we have a few goals there. So one is going to schools and teaching them about it. So it's just, for one, getting more kids interested in mechatronics and engineering and just, I guess, just generally science fields. Because when you go into a lab and you see, like, all the cool, you know, motors and actuators and sensors and PLCs and computers and everything running together and robotic arms moving around like that's going to get most people excited. So some of it's been like runs to middle schools. That's basically just to curate interest. Uh, We do some stuff to high schools and that's uh, getting interest, but also teaching them about the program and then teaching about the program that we have here at WCCC. Uh, We use the lab a little bit for labs actually on campus where we'll go out to there. And then uh, the other one that we're really trying to push into now is working with the local manufacturers. So going around to companies and training their employees. So part of that's so that they can, if they're moving to, to automate, they can, you know, re- retain all their employees and have them working on their automated systems.
2: When you go to all the schools, and you have the labs set up in the parking lot, and the students come out, can you tell right away, those that have a natural predisposition towards liking, as you say, tinkering and the robotics? Or do you find that um, you actually create n- new passion for this kind of technology and discipline by having it there? Or is it do do you know
1: right away which students are into it or do you teach them to be into it or both? I think it's both. So some students come out and they just see... Electronics, and they're instantly excited and asking questions. And like, that's not me, they're just already interested in it. Um, some students that come in and they kind of just are a little more apprehensive, or it sounds like they don't quite understand what's going on. And then I talk them through it. And then, let's say, in my 15 or 20 minute demo that I do by the end, I'll ask a question and they get it right and they understand what's happening with the system. And I'll like kind of see them light up a little bit, like, oh, I know what happened there. And I think that to a degree, at least, is a uh, helping inspire some of them to be more interested in this kind of field. Others are more of just, a, you know, I guess less interested, but, you know, a different fields for them. That's fine.
0: What is it like knowing that you're inspiring, you know, young minds to, to go into something you're obviously very passionate about?
1: Uh, it feels great. That's one of my favorite parts about going out is like when I see somebody that finally like it clicks for them and they get it. That's a fantastic feeling.
2: We were joking before the show about um, being nerdy but is there something about, is that, is that a pejorative in the engineering world? Is it kind of like, or would you say you are a nerd and what is it that makes engineers engineers in your opinion?
1: Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that's a pejorative. I mean, maybe some people might be offended by that, but I think that's just, if you're, you know, getting a graduate degree in engineering, you're probably pretty nerdy. That's most <laughs> people in the field. So you you are a nerd then? Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, but I mean, it's more of, I think it's been kind of adopted by the group of just, like that's the people that like electronics, like math, like, you know, physics or whatever else in science. And it's kind of like an identifier of that group.
2: We were talking to a welding instructor who was, is- uh, telling us about how within welding and within trades there's this competition that makes them all better. Is that the same within this interdisciplinary mechatronics, where you have electrical engineering, you have mechanical engineering, and then maybe other other types of engineering come and go? Um, do you all make each other better by the kind of having this competition within the
1: subdisciplines? Is that the same
2: kind of thing? Does
1: that happen? So. Yeah, there's absolutely some competition. So there's, I mean, there are people like between schools, like I know, so I went to school in University of Wisconsin at Platteville and we'd make fun of the MSOE people and then they'd make fun of us where it's just competing schools. Um, I know within different fields, the, uh, you know, like the electrical and some of the mechanicals that do a little bit more math will, you know, like make fun of the, I don't know, the, uh not industrial. Well, I guess maybe industrial too. And some of like the construction engineer and stuff like that. And then they'll make fun of us for not having social skills or something. Or <laughs> there's uh, there's definitely some like friendly competition there. But I will say that I've noticed that like when things actually need to get done, engineers are usually pretty good at working together. Like, especially uh, recently with COVID, that was something that I saw a lot too, as I worked for a little bit with uh, like the medical industry and working in a medical lab. And the amount of people that normally that's extremely competitive, and you don't share data at all. But I saw a ton of people like just saying, "Hey, we have this idea. We have this data. It's not even published yet, but we don't have time to keep working on it. If anyone wants to keep working with this data here, we're just opening it for anyone." So I think seeing stuff like that when things really need to get done is cool too.
0: It is really neat that kind of sense of community that's coming out. Yeah. So I'm 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 an English language person. I love writing. It, would you say that there's kind of math is its own language and and, um, being a mechanical engineer, you guys speak a certain kind of lingo language of your own.
1: I mean, yeah, I could see that. I think, yeah, maybe a language, but it's anything in the world can be described by math. And I think if you're A person who's really into math, even just, you know, walking into the room here and seeing like, I know that there's a certain resistance inside this microphone here. And then based on the voltage coming through, we're going to have a certain amount of amperage. And then that's going to go into your control board. And we've got an audio guy here that I'm sure knows something about the ways that you can distort, you know, like the actual signals, the vibrations that are coming in to give a more clear signal and just everything from cleaning up data or cleaning an audio signal, like all of that, there's equations that run all of it. Uh, another one where you see like similarities is uh, energy. So whether you're looking at an electrical signal or a vibration through, say, a metal beam or something, uh, the equations are almost identical. So dynamical systems is the mechanical version of how do we look at different vibrations in systems and how do we damp vibrations and how do we increase them or resonance frequencies. You get the exact same thing with the same equations in electronics.
0: So it's sort of like this universal language that no matter what country you live in or what city you're studying in or working in, you can actually kind of, you, you're talking about the same thing.
1: Yes. Yeah, it is absolutely universal. Although I will say I've noticed differences in how people perceive math. So um, one thing that kind of struck me was somebody that I met in grad school. She, uh, she was from not Russia, somewhere in Eastern Europe, but uh like the way that she was taught there was much more based on the actual equations than graphs. And I know at least in the United States, most people have a better idea of what's going on in a system by looking at a graph of what's happening versus the equation and like, to me, we were getting a ton of graphs in the class and that all made sense to me and to most of the people I was talking to. And then I overheard her saying like, can we please get the equations too? I just can't visualize it in my head if I don't have the equation, which to me seems weird because that's what I'm, I look at an equation, convert it into a graph in my head and look at it. As opposed to her, she's you know literally looking at the graph and saying, can I get the equation so I can visualize it in my head? So I know that there's definitely still differences between people.
2: So I, I do music and I think about, like, when I think about the guitar, I actually visualize the chords on the piano because it's easier to transpose. Is, is it the same kind of thing? Like, and is that a good metaphor, a way to describe how the different engineers see math differently, but it's the same
1: language? Same. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Or it's, uh, you know, maybe for one person they play by ear and they have a great intuitive sense of what keys they need to hit and they're playing entirely by ear and just by how they feel and they have muscle memory for the different chords to hit. Another person, uh, that's me, cannot sit down and play anything on the piano. I need to like have it written out in front of me and I can read music and play it decently well. But if you just said, hey, can you play this song and like you play it for me, I can't repeat a song. I have to like have it written out where both people can, you know, play the piano, but you need to just, I guess, experience the information differently so you can actually then make the notes on the piano.
2: So all those stereotypes about engineers being the same is not true.
1: No, that's definitely (laughs) not true. Uh,
0: You're originally from Chicago, is that right?
1: Yes, or Chicago suburbs.
0: Do you you remember, you know, growing up and you kind of... taking a liking to, to that whole tinkering thing, like playing with Legos and figuring out kind of what goes together and why it goes together and, and figuring out certain problems.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I mean, played with Legos since I was a tiny child. Um, I remember that when I was in middle school and stuff like that, like the microwave would break and my dad would say, Hey, do you want to open this up? And we would just like, You know, obviously it's unplugged and stuff, but like, give me the old microwave that they were replacing and like open it and try to figure out what went wrong with it. And yeah, even since probably middle school, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. So that's definitely something I've always been into.
2: And knowing you wanted to be the engineer since you were young, you came from a place where there were lots of options to become an engineer. But a lot of the communities around here in the the rural parts of the state might have, I imagine, uh, a young woman or young man who might have the same basic skills that you have, but maybe not the same opportunities if you live in, say, Meeker, Colorado. Um, But I think, from what I understand, part of what you're doing with this mobile learning lab is you're taking the technology to communities that might not otherwise have access to engineering schools or this type of math or this type of technology in their, where they grow up? Is that part of your mission
1: or part of what you're trying to accomplish? Yes, so the just the equipment in the lab is hundreds of thousands of dollars. So getting that to the places that need it that either don't have the funding to set up a mechatronics lab, or even just like don't have the programs, if we can go there and teach it to them so they can get the hands on work. um, Part of it is maybe we'll put something online so they'll have some base. And then we get there and show them all the, you know, the equipment that we have and they get to, you know, program a PLC, which is a programmable logic controller or set up a sensor or figure out troubleshoot a system. So they get to take stuff that they learned either online or in some cases when it's closer in person, and then actually apply it in the lab. And how, what about enrollment with your program? How's that going? Um, so we're getting there. We just started, what was that? Two years ago, I think. So um, we are at like five students now. Um, I know actually a bunch of people have had interest in enrolling. So it sounds like next semester, we're going to have a pretty good boost in size. So, um, I mean, we'll probably end up with eight or 10 students or something by next semester. So pretty small class sizes at this point, but it's uh, it's growing pretty quickly.
0: And you have your your bachelor's um, in mechanical engineering, but you have your master's in biomedical engineering. What what yes. is that, and how is that different? And what did you do? And what did you what 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 is it?
1: Okay, so uh, mechanical engineering. Um, with that, I was more into thermal fluid systems, so looking at stuff like uh, phase changes and heat transfer and fluid dynamics. Um, biomedical. So, I still have an electromechanical emphasis within biomedical engineering. Um, biomedical is any way that you can do something that relates to medicine in the human body. So, um, for some people, that's going to be making, you know, artificial prosthetics, or maybe it's going to be designing an insulin pump, so devices that interact with people. Um, some fields, like people that come from biology originally, might be how do we change this enzyme and then reinsert it into the body to affect some other cascade that's going to upregulate or downregulate some biological function. So it could be literally engineering the human body of how you can change it. So like that's where most medications and stuff that we have now, Um, or it could be, you know, creating a device that interacts with the human body. And that's more of where I was at was like the, uh, how we can take mechanical devices and interact.
2: Like the biomechanics of the human body in terms of like your, your elbow and your hips and your shoulders like those are those like the basic you take from that anyway and abstract into these disciplines like you work in so there's like I imagine there's a lot of symmetry between the intuition we have about the biomechanics of the human body and mechanical
1: engineering they're like connected in a way right yes so so that's it's funny that's actually one of the classes that I TA'd for was uh, human biomechanics And it's literally just the exact same class that I took in regular mechanical engineering, my mechanics class. But in biomechanics, instead of having like, you know, a hinge on a door or something, it would be your elbow and your bones (laughs) of your arm. So it is the exact same thing. The math is the same. It's just set up for the human body instead of for, you know, whatever devices you'd see in mechanical.
2: So just for fun, if you're taking mechanical engineering going like way, way back to like, like you, you see stick. And you pick up stick and then stick is extension of arm and stick goes into termite mound like that, that basic mechanical engineering is the same thing that drives the advanced engineering that you're doing today. When
1: you think about like in terms of the that biomedical stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, so you have it had to start somewhere and it was just like, you know, sticking a stick in a termite mound. We need food. I have a tool that's going to go in and I'm going to get food out. And it's funny, that's actually about where apes are at now, or some great apes have been seen to do stuff like, you know, take a stick and put it in a termite mound. And then eventually it's, well, you know, how can we make that a little better? Now we want to be able to throw it and it's a spear. Now we want to be able to put that on, you know, something else and we'll launch this spear and we'll call it a bow. Like you can have whatever you want and it's going to keep building and building. Um, All the way up to Tomahawk missiles. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. Where it's uh, it's just how can we make these incremental increasements in whatever technology we have. And now it's turned into, you know, like there's uh, organoids, I'd say is about the peak of where we're at now where they can uh, take cells from your body extract them they add a whole bunch of uh, enzymes and hormones to them and turn them into stem cells and those are pluripotent stem cells and then from those you can create uh, you basically force it into a certain form of cell so you could make like a brain organoid so you'd pull out cells from someone make them into stem cells make those stem cells into a brain and then you'd have in a dish a tiny little like not fully formed but like think the size of an M&M um, tiny little brain that has, you know, the nerves that you'd see in your brain and they can test, all right, well, what is this medication going to do? And I actually think that's probably going to be the future of medicine is having it personalized to each person where you can like test what interaction will this drug have based on the actual cells from that person.
0: How interesting. (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, You, you obviously came here to Grand Junction for this position, what what drew you to Western Colorado Community College, and and why the and why this role?
1: So, uh, I mean, just for one, it's a really cool area. It's surrounded by, you know, biking, hiking, rock climbing, skiing, basically all the things that are fun to do outside. So, it's a really cool area. And then, um, I already had a friend that had come out and became a professor at CMU, who let me know that there's a position. I was like, okay, that sounds like it'll be pretty fun and applied. And I'm really glad I did that because it's been great teaching out here
2: we were talking to professor Gall about uh, political science and he was talking about how he takes it home with him cuz he he gets home and he's watching you know i don't know the weekend programmings or, or crossfire or whatever do you do you ever get a break from being a nerd in the sense that when you're out on your mountain bike you're still thinking in terms of mechanical engineering and how the bike could be better and how you could make the gear ratio perform better and how you could make the brakes more fluid and how the engineers that made that bike didn't
1: know what they were doing. Like, do you ever get a break from oh, you're yeah. br- always thinking about engineering in the world or, and stuff like that? Definitely. So, I mean, I always have a project going at home. Uh, my most recent one is I bought, this is like, I might've been off more than I could chew here, but I bought a mill to use at home and I'm trying to convert it into a CNC mill. So I'm trying to like, Make all of the parts into it, and design an entire control system that'll talk to all the drivers to talk to the motors to then control what's supposed to just be a normal mill to make it into a computer-controlled mill. That like I could, my goal for this is to have a uh, a three D like object that I could make in software and then just export it to the mill and have it make whatever that device is.
0: Mill what do you Yeah, do you we mean? don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so, uh,
1: no, I work right next to the milling department. That's um. So a mill is like, I think like if you've ever used like a drill press where there's like a drill that comes down and can drill a hole in something, oh, okay. it's that, but it does X, Y, and Z movement and you can change out these. And instead of a drill, you'd have like an end mill. So it's basically just like a bit that's flat on the bottom and you can have it just take off chunks of metal. So, you know, like it depends on the mill. Like the one I have is for like aluminum and steel, but it would, Literally, you'd put a chunk of metal in and clamp it down and then it comes down and carves out whatever part you want out of metal. And and you call this um, fun. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> yes. I love the way you see the world. You see yeah. it so differently than I do. Like, where, you know, you mentioned like we're sitting in the studio with all this audio equipment and I'm looking at this this microphone and I'm just thinking, oh, it's a microphone. And your brain is thinking about all everything that's happening inside the microphone. It's really, really fun to talk to you right now.
2: Do engineers um, get frustrated at that? At what Kelsey just described, like the disconnect between um, modern modernity and what goes into making it modern? And, and, and maybe is there is that unhealthy that we are so disconnected from things and how, where they come from and how they work, how we design? Because I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea what's on this microphone. I have no idea how the switchboard that's monitoring our audio works and should people know more
1: stuff or is it good to be specialized in the way we are? So, I mean, I think in some degree, so I'm sure there are engineers that get frustrated with people, but I would think it would be more of a client describing what they want. And I think the frustration would more be like, hey, I want it to do this. And it's like, yeah, that's really easy. We can do that. And they do it and say, also, I want it to do this. And it's like, well, no, that's really hard it, on the surface. It sounds like it's just another request, but that one is a month of work. And this one was 10 minutes of work. Oh, okay. But even within different fields of specialty, I think- Uh, I remember having a conversation with an anesthesiologist, so this is a person. Who has you know a medical degree and then years of practice as a doctor, and you know they're obviously extremely intelligent and really good at what they do. And talking to them, you know, they're just like back and forth about like, oh yeah, we're gonna do this and this, and it's stuff that's way over my head for like what drugs they're actually going to use for anesthesia. And uh, we were trying to do a data collection thing in an OR, and uh, part of the button we were saying like, oh, we should put it in a foot pedal, which for me that's literally a hinge, and you put a plate over it and it hits the button. That's something. That you can put together in fifteen minutes, and there's this person that is incredibly like, just brilliant that knows exactly what they're doing in medicine. And when I suggest a foot plate, they're like, "Oh, we'll let you take care of that." one like we don't know how to do that, it's to the, Yeah, it's hmm. it's just whatever your specialty is. Where they're doing stuff that to me is magic. I don't know how all those drugs work, but to them, they've been doing it a long time and know exactly what it is. And something to me that is straightforward to them, they have no idea. So I think it's just whatever your specialty is.
0: You published some work in 2019. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So actually there's uh, there was one that was in 2019 and one that actually just got published recently too. So um, 2019 was my thesis, which was, uh, let's see, the whole basis of it was there's a type of ventilation where you put a needle down somebody's. Th- throat and it's just like an open needle and you hit a button and And that's like
0: this is during surgery during surgery yes
1: okay so uh actually let's back up a little bit so (laughs) during surgery uh you're under anesthesia so they give you a whole bunch of things and one of them is a paralytic. So they give you a whole bunch of painkillers that make you more relaxed and reduce pain. And then on top of that, usually there will be a paralytic, which is something that paralyzes you because they don't want like muscle movement and stuff while they're actually working on you. Cause that could cause a lot of issues. And especially if you wake up, you don't want you moving around. So what that also does will stop your breathing. So, uh, and that's a combination of the anesthetic and paralytic. So, If you're not breathing, obviously that's really bad, so what they'll do usually is take something called an endotracheal tube, which is a tube with what looks like a kind of donut-shaped balloon around it, and they'll put it down your trachea, so down your throat, into your lungs, and blow up that little balloon to seal it, and they can push air into your lungs and pull it out, and then they have a machine that breathes for you while you're under anesthesia. Um, there's a special type of that called low frequency jet ventilation. So if you need surgery done on an upper airway or they're doing an upper endoscopy or a bunch of other procedures.
0: And these are procedures that people like some of our listeners right now, probably maybe have had.
1: Yeah, for sure. So if you've ever had, so even something as simple as like GERD, where you know that there's damage to, uh, well, actually that's more esophageal, um, so there's several. The one that I focused on was congenital defects, which means people born with stuff growing in their trachea and their throat. Um, so if you're born with something in your airway and it's blocking, let's say eighty percent of the way, uh, you can't just live with you know twenty percent of the normal uh, airspace to breathe through. So they have to have a surgeon go in and cut out that extra growth. But if you're doing surgery in the upper airway, you can't use that tube that they normally use. So instead, they have to use just, it's usually like a 14 gauge, so kind of like a large open needle. And they have a metal tube called a laryngoscope for most procedures. Sometimes it's like a subglottoscope or endoscope, but they'll take this scope and put it down your throat. So imagine that you like tilt your head back. You put this metal tube down their throat and that holds the airway open. So now that it's open, they can put this needle down and put jets of air in, but the issue is that um, sometimes you'll have like non-homogenous ventilation where one lung will get more air than the other, and that's really bad because if one air is adequately ventilated and the other lung doesn't have enough air, uh, then you don't have enough oxygen overall. If they try to increase the pressure, now maybe one is adequately ventilated and the other one is getting too much ventilation, so you can get damage to your lungs. There's a whole bunch of different ways that that can happen, but essentially too much pressure is going to blow up your lungs, not enough pressure, you're going to get hypoxia and you're going to have issues with your organs and stuff. So it's uh, it was looking at different ways to uh, to adjust ventilation for more homogenous ventilation. That's amazing. So
2: there's a, this whole space within medicine for mechanical engineers who learn enough of the, the biomedical stuff to be able to communicate clearly with those in, in medicine,
1: those surgeons, those that are practicing that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some people that go into that as biologists and learn just enough engineering to talk to the engineers and do it. Um, I'm from the other end. And like, I feel like I learned just enough biology to talk to these doctors where it's like, I, you know, type biology and physiology and the classes like that, that were required and some like stem cell stuff. But it's, uh, there's a lot going on there where, I mean, there's a reason that doctors spend all those years in medical school because there is so much going on. So you're to make sure I have this right. You're applying the same
2: principles in someone's lungs during surgery that a mechanical engineer would apply to a piston. Like I mean the you're you're blocking off their throat, mm-hmm. you're making sure that the right amount of air gets put into the lungs, not too much, not too less. It's got to be the right volume at the right pressure and and in the same way that you
1: calibrating how much pressure you need to make a piston fire, it's the same basic ideas that you're just applying to people's lungs. So for normal ventilation, yes, that's closed circuit ventilation where it's sealed. Um, the reason that low frequency jet ventilation is poorly understood is because it is open. Like there's nothing else sealing your trachea. It's just a jet of air. So you're pushing really, really high pressures, like think 50 PSI or something. So um, like a, a tarp, or a tire for your car is going to be maybe 30 PSI or something. This is 50 PSI being shot into your lungs. And obviously you can't handle that, but because it's open, there's not that much that actually makes it to the distal airways. So like the really far down airways that are actually doing all of the gas exchange get maybe less than half a PSI or something like significantly less pressure. So it's just a kind of figuring out how to accurately do that. I think as an English major. I'm going to have to leave it there. I don't know if I could, okay. <laughs> but that,
0: I get the yeah. basics. I get
1: the basics.
2: Yeah.
0: And so uh, I guess rounding it out, mechatronics. You can go so many different avenues with with that education, right? It's it's so broad and it's so it just opens the door to so many different opportunities. And so I think WCCC having you as part of their you know team teaching these courses, it's great to have you. And I think that you know any any student, any, um, you know, business who, who wants to learn about this stuff and and can further that education and is, has a good, has a good place to go here.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, It could be you're working in a factory doing repairs there. You could be automating setups. You could be doing repairs for ATMs. You could be doing repairs for MRIs in a hospital. You could be doing research. Like even the ventilation that I did was like automating. So if we need consistent data for ventilation, we need the needle to be in the exact same spot every time. So it was essentially taking a 3D printer and converting it into an automated ventilation machine. Where it's just learning about the electronics, the sensors, the actuators, and how you can get it to all play nice together so you can make it do whatever you need it to do. I'm glad there's people like you in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. It's a good place to live.
0: Yeah. And how, how long is the program? Because it, it, you don't have to get a four-year degree to be able to do a lot of the stuff that you have mentioned here
1: today. No, you don't. So we have a one-year certificate Um, and then a two-year associate's degree. And both of them, you can get some pretty good jobs with. So one year is more of like, if you want to do repairs on electrical devices or something like that in one year, you can have a degree and be doing that. The two-year degree is more of, you'd be hired as think like maintenance team for a factory or something like that. And you'd be actually like, out there on the floor, either setting stuff up for a company that sets up automated systems for a factory, or maybe you'd be hired by one company and, uh, you know, like repairing the systems they already have. One of my roommates had a degree in that and he did, it was like the scrubbers for uh, companies that make chemicals. They have to like scrub off the fumes from it. And he flew like all over the country. I think he spent like 40 weeks a year not at home where it's like when we occasionally saw him, it was exciting because he was just all over the country um, fixing these chemical scrubbers.
0: It's really amazing how many diverse jobs are out there when you start to think about it. You know, it's like, of course you hear, you know, teacher, doctor, lawyer, but then you, you, what what did you just say? Some scrubber, like doing, like. (laughs) Fixing
1: machines that remove chemicals before air gets vented out into the environment.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is the See Me Now Edition Podcast, and I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, with my co-host, David Dudlam. And today we spoke with Josh Pertelli. Thanks for coming.
1: Thank you.